You are listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. Oneofus.net and all of the shows on it are 100% subscriber supported. Please consider becoming a subscriber to oneofus.net. Keep the site and all of our great shows going and get some terrific bonus content as well. Hey, Digital Noises here. I'm I'm with Sir John Golson of the Golsons. Yes, make some digital noise. What, what? Woo! I can't make one of those, uh, uh, one of those little air horn sounds. Ooga! Yeah. That's old school air horn. <laughs> well, yeah, but it's the best kind, right? <laughs> some would say. I don't know. Uh, yeah, make some digital noise. <laughs> it sounds like the cat hissing. It's not really what I was going after here. We've got lots of Blu-rays to talk about. A few DVDs. Lots of good stuff, some weird stuff, and some what-the-hell-were-they-thinking stuff. And let's start off with the what-the-hell-that-were-they-thinking stuff with the Banana Splits movie. The Banana Splits movie. Uh, I mean, I'm not with the crowd that's offended by its very existence. You know, these are obviously uh, Gen Xers or Baby Boomers who, like... Like, well, I liked this when I was a kid, and I'm showing them to my kids. And, like, what if I showed it? What if someone showed this to their kids? Not no. It's like, look, the guy's holding an axe on the cover. Like, if if you didn't realize, I don't know what to tell you. You need to be a better parent. Yeah. <laughs> um, and first off, the banana splits, who were, what, what they were, like, uh, Croft superstars? Uh, Hanna-Barbera, I think. Was it? Yeah. They were Hanna-Barbera. Hanna yeah, yeah they were Hanna-Barbera, right. and they were, they hosted a variety show where they would show cartoons. And, and I remember the cartoons more fondly than I remember the splits themselves. Like, I believe Adam Ant was one of their regular uh, cartoons. Uh, I believe Secret Squirrel was also one of their one of the cartoons that aired on uh, Banana Splits. Well, um, but the, the cartoons within Banana Splits have had more cultural longevity than the Banana Splits themselves. Oh, yeah. And banana, I was going to say, the Banana Splits are, are are all but forgotten about. I mean, yeah. Sigmund the Sea Monster has more legs than, yeah. than uh, these guys did. They're just a bunch of dudes in suits like you'd see at like an amusement park or something who have little proto-monkeys musical sequences all sped up and little chases and lots of slapstick. Uh and it was, you know, I mean, they were the, the, the cover story for the show, but they weren't, you're right, they were never the best part of it. But yeah. obviously for some people, they hold, like, a fondness, a memory of, of, like, childhood. And so, even though no one was lining up to make a movie out of these things, I mean, they're not an IP that anyone's like, oh, it's strong, we gotta come back to this. So, it was... But, but you know what is a strong IP right now, Chris? Five Nights at Freddy's is a strong IP right now. Right. And they couldn't get the money for that. So here we are with the Banana Splits movie, which is like, why don't we do it like a horror film? Which is a family uh, that the youngest kid is a huge fan of the Banana Splits. Like yeah, it, it, it's like a parallel universe where the Banana Splits never left the cultural co- 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 uh, get tongue-tied. <laughs> cultural conversation. It's still in the air. It still has like huge 
fans. Right. And, and, and their show is totally different, too. So it's almost like a complete fantasy version of what their show is because their show is more like it was like some weird amalgamation of like Blues Clues and Barney or something like that. Yeah, or, or uh, even Pee Wee Herman yeah. a little bit. Yeah. You know, like uh, there was like the one human character who comes in who plays who's a cop, but I guess sometimes he's other he's stuff. He's a mailman sometimes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the four characters here are not dudes in suits. They're supposed to be robots, animatronic creations that like – you know, aren't stuck on the stage like your Chuck E. Cheese performers, but actually can move around and have like a set series of AI programming. But when one of them overhears the uh, despicable owner of the network say, we're canceling the show. God, I'm so glad. Fuck these guys. They The AI breaks and they go yes. crazy and start killing people inside the studio at their very last show. And we follow the family of Harley, who's a little kid who's obsessed with them. And uh, the, his birthday present is uh, his mom and then her boyfriend, who's kind of a douchebag, his older half-brother and uh, his classmate who doesn't want to be there at all but is slowly kind of getting into it once the sh- when the show's going on they're all there and there's lots of boy aren't people who like to use their cell phones a lot terrible type like reasons for killing people <laughs> and it's just for sh- something that's such a wacky ip it feels really lazy in the story t- in storytelling there's just nothing here other than what i just told you yeah banana splits go crazy start trying to kill everyone in the studio but there's some part of them that still responds to children because they want to like kidnap all the kids and force them to watch the show going on forever yeah <laughs> it's a cheap movie it's kind of um it's it's interesting in in concept, it's not particularly interesting execution. I thought the actors in it were um, were you know they're not given great material to work with. It's not mm-hmm. like they were given some great characters and fantastic monologues and whatever. But they're all competent above the board actors. Um, this never hits like a real level. And there's actually there's a couple movies we're going to be talking about today that that to me kind of do this. Where I think by their by the nature of what they are. They have to reach some level of lunacy, mm-hmm. and it never really is. And I don't know if that's a budget thing. It never, it never reaches any level of lunacy. It doesn't hit even close to like Peter Jackson levels of like gore, you know. But I don't, yeah. I don't think that's what it's aiming for. But it also doesn't. It never embraces its own ridiculousness either. It never goes full wacky. And I feel like something like this needs to go full wacky. Otherwise, it's just dull. Yeah, and, and it ends up being dull. And some of the stuff too is like they're never believable as animatronics. They're, they always come across as people in costumes. I almost think it might have been better if it were people in costumes killing people, and you didn't know. It's creepier to me to think there's somebody in there that's like psycho that they have a it, cult or something. Yeah, than <laughs> it is to go like, oh, they're evil robots because they have like right. a Terminator reveal where one of them gets his face like pulled off, and it's like, oh, he has an endoskeleton, a, you know, <laughs> cartoon dog endoskeleton or whatever the hell. Um, it's just, you know, it's it's super middle of the road for something that looks like it should be weird and fun. It's not that weird. It's, it's not that fun. I was seeing a lot of praise for this. I did not like the trailer. Um, I'm, I'm kind of a Hanna-Barbera nerd. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I, um, you know, if, if, I would say I'm like 
a sea level Hanna Barbera. Yeah. When you go to John's house, he's got this really long hallway, and it's just the same painting every like five feet. <laughs> I do have a collection of Dino Mutt things, though. Um, so I'm not like you know I, I can't name every single animator that works on every single episode of uh, Goldie Golden Action Jack, oh, but like I'm a, but I'm I'm a pretty I'm bigger than usual Hanna Barbera nerd. All right, and so. I was open-minded to the idea, but I thought the trailers were bad. But I saw a lot of friends really, really, really excited to see it on social media. Just everybody was like, this looks great. This looks terrific. I share 30 friends with the director. (laughs) I know. I know. I saw that today myself. (laughs) She was on my recommend to be friends list. And I was like, "Uh oh, (laughs) Um, you know. I don't know how – I'm kind of curious about the origin of this movie. I don't know how it came across. I don't know if it was like a mercenary job of, hey, we want a Five Nights at Freddy's. What do we have? We have these costume characters. All right, let's blow the dust off this. Who wants to direct this? Who wants to write it? Right. I don't know if it was the studio reaching out and going, hey, we have something we want to do in the direct video market. Who wants it? Or if it was like an actual pitch where it's like, hey, I wonder if Warner Brothers would be open-minded to doing something crazy with the banana splits. Well, I, the one thing I'll give it. Is that the kills are all practical yeah. and and so, uh, you know they're actually on the whole pretty well done and very gory, but they're not splat stick gory. No, like and said, there's really only like, there's only really only like three of them. Yeah, peppered throughout. There's the not a too. huge amount, but when they do it, they do go full on. You yeah. know, like there's and the problem is they're trying to get their humor in through that, and it doesn't really work. Like the thing that they killed this guy by shoving a giant size lollipop down his throat until he dies. And you're like, okay. It's stuff like that. But every time other there's very few attempts to actually just be funny in the film. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, they didn't even try to write jokes for this as near as I can tell most of the time. Most of it was just visual humor like that or just, isn't it just weird? It's just weird that this is a thing. Like, yeah, it's not that weird. Sometimes there's just movies like, like, uh, Space Jam and and other things where it's like they have the concept and then there's like nothing else attached to the concept. The yes. concept. Oh, Michael Jordan plays basketball with Looney Tunes. Well, you don't. You didn't write any. There's no like. There's nothing else but that. And it's like Banana Splits is one of those kind of movies where it's like, what if the Banana Splits went on a rampage? And yeah. It's like nothing else but that. But it's also the kind of movie where I know people are curious enough. Just from again social media interactions, it stirred enough curiosity. It doesn't matter what we say; I know people are going to see it anyway. Of course, yeah, yeah. I know a lot of people who are like, who said, "I've heard the bad reviews. I don't care. I can't wait to see this." I'm like, "All right." Yeah, I just don't think they realize how how middle of the road it is. Yeah, that's just very meh. Uh, there are some bonus features here: eight minute and a half minutes behind the horror casting crew talking about uh, how creepy the original costume designs were I guess. Um, yeah, it felt false. I watched yeah. that. It felt like an EPK thing. I was actually, yeah. I watched the special features hoping for more of an origin story about the, how the project came together. Right, but there's nothing like yeah. that here. There's six and a half minutes terror on set with the director and uh, the executive VP of the uh, production company and the production designer talk about the sets, the costumes, and the production design of the film. There's breaking news, the Banana Splits Massacre, which is t- a two minute sort of like thing that you're like, shouldn't this have been going on during the end credits where it's like a news report of the massacre that just happened, you know? Okay. Uh, And insinuation, there'll be more. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, believe it or not, this comes with a digital copy and a DVD copy along with a Blu-ray. They were really thinking they were onto something here. They were not. I would recommend though, the comic book banana splits meet suicide squad that came out like a year or two ago. I thought that was a pretty good dusting off of the IP and, and, they treated the characters as if they were actual talking dogs and talking monkeys and talking elephants. And 
they're mixing it up with Harley and Killer Croc and everybody, and I actually thought it was really fun. Fair. Uh, I, I like Batman versus Teenage, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, yeah. so you never know. Yeah. Uh, next up is a, another film that was at the very least marketed as a horror, although I would say it was definitely more of a psychological thriller, um, that I know a lot of people went into it going, yeah, it's going to be a Blumhouse horror film, really excited, did not get that, and so decided it was boring and awful. I walked in saying, you never know what you're going to get from Blumhouse. I mean, God, they've done some like family-friendly dramas, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and thought it was really neat. And that's the movie Ma. Now, it's been reviews all over the board from, wow, this is great, to middle of the road, to this is the worst movie that came out this year. But Octavia Spencer is such the, like, the glue that holds all these otherwise very familiar pieces together. And that's a lot. That's, that, that means a lot. Because the premise, which is a bunch of dumb kids who want to party, end up in trouble uh, because of antagonist, in this case her, is not, there's no big surprises there. What is surprising is the way she chooses to play this role as the, killer is the wrong word. She's a local who's like, obviously chasing after some degree of like, the feelings of lost childhood, or maybe never even having the childhood that she really wanted to, and has become the cool mom in the neighborhood that's letting the kids come party in her basement and buying them booze and stuff, until she starts becoming intensely stalkery needy, and starts getting creepier and creepier from there. Um, I Like I said, I feel like the biggest problem here is just people were expecting a, a, like a, like a body count mo- movie, and it's just not that kind of movie. I almost wish that it would have done better so that we could get to the body count movies. I, I'd like to know what Ma 4 looks like. You know what I mean? Like, I'd really like, because once they move away from, you know, the movie sticks close to, okay, she lives in this town and it, there, the stakes are kind of small and personal because they're all related to her past and the people never left the town. So the people yeah. that, the people that in high school, um, you know, may have caused her psychological harm are all still around and everybody still kind of knows each other. It's this new family that had moved away and comes back to the town that sort of like uh, causes things to escalate. And and so I, I, I wish that it had <laughs> made money so that we could move it away from the town and away from those stakes and go, you know, yeah, what is do we do we what end up with next? Mon space? Do we Mon end up with like Mon what X. happens to Ma? Yeah, um, <laughs> that I, one where she has to fight a psychic. That's yeah. my favorite. <laughs> I, w- I want to know what happens to Ma in that fifth or sixth sequel. Um, There's a Ma versus Pa. Yeah, <laughs> that's what they'd have to introduce sooner or later. Uh, I this was it was fun. Um, like Banana Splits, this was actually the other one I was referring to that I felt like. I really wanted it to achieve a, a, a real level of nuts that it never quite lived up to. Um, it felt like it was going to get uh, a little a little goofier, maybe more broadly campy, maybe a little nuttier. I kind of I kind of was waiting for that or anticipating like things for for things to get like like pretty intense and. They're like a low level intense. It's sort right. of it, it. The ending felt appropriate, uh, and and it felt like it was. If it reached a fork in the road and it went, we can try to keep this as serious as we can, or we can go ahead and just say fuck all, throw it to the wind, and end Ma with like the craziest ending. I think they err on the side of let's. She does the Nightmare yeah. on Elm Street too. You are all my children. <laughs> I think I think they err on the side of trying to keep it respectable and mature. And right. I don't know. 
if that's the flavor I wanted from the end of Ma. I think I wanted something. I think I wanted something a little bit bigger and and maybe even a little bit sillier because the movie sure flirts with it. It's almost it's almost unintentionally funny, but I think a lot of the funny stuff is intentional. Like I do Agreed. think that it's designed to be amusing. I think most of it is designed to be amusing. I think the most interesting thing here is that they created a movie that I fully expected for them to do a completely unsympathetic killer. And the truth is, I'm kind of rooting for Ma in a lot of this movie. Yeah. And maybe it's just because teenagers annoy me now. But, <laughs> like, they really give a good picture of who this person is. And you genuinely feel bad for this person who's having a psychotic break. And it's not like she moves immediately into starting trying to cut up kids. She's like... I mean, these kids are just cold and heartless and treat her like shit, considering, and she just starts getting really hurt. And she literally has a psychotic break. And I'm like, maybe you should kill some of these teenagers. <laughs> uh, I think that's the most interesting thing about it is I don't think I've ever seen, you know, the so widely marketed, you know, the killer in the movie be genuinely the most likable character in the film. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. There's uh, there are some other characters that I liked and would have liked to have seen more of that I almost can't talk about without spoilers. But uh, I w- I would recommend Ma. I think I think Ma is like a nice, you know, it, it's um, it's brisk and entertaining, and it has some good, it has some good kills. It does have a few ridiculous moments, and even if it doesn't reach that like fever pitch. Uh, I I still actually liked it, and it made for a nice little night at home watching a movie. You know, a lot of times I feel like, um, and it's it's no fault of the stacks from Digital Noise. Sometimes it's the faults of just whatever I choose to watch. Right. But it it did satisfy me, and there's so often I find myself watching stuff that I'm just like halfway through. I'm just like I I could be doing anything else, but what I'm doing. Oh right yeah. Now. yeah. And and I I liked I liked Ma. Uh, the also stars Diana, Diana Silvers, who's having a good year. She was mm-hmm. in Booksmart. Um, Juliette Lewis, Luke Evans, Allison Janney, who's not in here anywhere near. Anywhere. That's weird. There yeah. were like a few people who Missy I was Pyle. Like, Why are they in there? Missy Pyle's in this too. Dominic Burgess, Tate Taylor. I was like, they've got tiny little roles. In Allison it. Janney, I think, only has like two lines. Yeah, I'm like, how in the hell is she in this thing? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so there's an alternate ending, two minutes long, de- uh, 11 and a half minutes of deleted scenes. There's two minutes, 50 seconds of creating Sue Ann, which is Tavia Spencer and some of the cast, rest of the cast and crew, uh, basically just tell you what the plot is again and then talk about how great she is. Uh, Party at Ma's, four minutes, a look at uh, its horror beats. I still insist this is not a horror film. It, you know, I mean, it's there's a lot of films I'll go, they want to sell it's a psychological thriller. I'm like, no, this is definitely a horror film. This one is, to me, is definitely a psychological thriller. You're like, it's just not focused, very focused on being a horror movie at all. Yeah, I think the difference. I think the difference here, and it, it may be a case of splitting hairs, but I think the difference is that you have to ask yourself: Is its intent? To me, a horror movie is defined as either it has elements of the uncanny, or its intent is to disturb you or scare you. I don't think the intent here. Too often, they let you into Ma's head. I think if they didn't let you into who Ma was as a person, as often and you had more questions about who she is and why she behaves that way, I think it skirts closer to horror than closer to thriller. Yeah. But I, I do agree with you on that. Uh, next up, we have what is genuinely a horror film, although your uh, results may vary, and that is Hoax. <laughs> Uh-oh, John's got that face he makes when he's like, why did you give me this movie? 
<laughs> oh, hoax. You know, of the epic releasing films, which we send, we always have sort of that sort of patted on the back, go, aw, you tried, and that's oh, what's important. Hoax. If you- only you would come out 18 years ago. <laughs> um, and... Yeah, then a lot of the stars in it would have been huge stars back then. <laughs> uh, I, so some would have been born. <laughs> this is faint praise, but this is actually my favorite of the epic films we've actually released, reviewed, though. Yeah. Um, it's still not great, but there's certain degrees of it that I thought were fun. There's a certain amount of, like, in the twist that's like, this is so incredibly badly thought out that I'm actually kind of having fun watching it play out the way it does. But the idea is this disgraced TV show producer named Rick, played by uh, Ben Browder. You might know he was the lead on Farscape, uh, which I didn't even recognize him at first. It's like, been so long since I've seen him in anything. But he has one last chance to not get fired, which is, he said, "My," <laughs> and you're like, wow, you're an idiot. I can prove Sasquatch is real. <laughs> On a reality TV show. Um, So he gets a bunch of ex-military survivalists, one by uh, Brian Thompson, who if you've ever watched any genre television shows, you've seen him. He's a big, scary-looking guy who played, like, the alien assassin and the X-Files and lots of other stuff. Actually, I'm friends with him on Facebook, and he is a super sweet guy. Just really, really nice. Um, but, uh, But some scientists, a doctor, the father of a woman we saw almost certainly get killed in the beginning of the film uh, in a, a scene that seems to be only there to go, hey, look, we've got nudity. <laughs> yes. It looked like someone called a favor in. Yes. But uh, they're like, oh, well, do we think there is a Bigfoot. So they're out in the Colorado wild- wilderness and trying to shoot stuff. And uh, people, they start getting picked off one by one uh, by what we even see on screen is a Bigfoot. We're like, that's Sasquatch. Um and then, of course, there's a big twist at the end that is kind of ridiculous and not very good. Why yeah. couldn't it have been aliens, John, is all I'm saying. I don't know. This is a this is a relic of horror days gone by. And not like long ago days gone by, but travel with me, if you will, to the time where we were getting wrong turn sequels on a regular basis. It does like, have that feeling of a wrong turn sequel, um, for sure. You know, if you like the movies where uh, men and women are um, crying and screaming and being flayed and things like that, it is um, it is more torture-porny than you might expect, and it definitely felt like a horror movie that I would have seen in that time. In 2019... Uh, I'm not as uh, open-minded towards watching watching something boring culminate in human suffering. Yeah. It's like it's like why are you doing this to me? It's like, I, I, it feels like personal offense. Like you made me sit through all that garbage just to have me watch some like really more offensive garbage at like, the end. It's like when they wait till the end of your shift to fire you. <laughs> Uh, it's not particularly suspenseful. You know, I actually think that you know, some of the acting is, like, okay for this level of movie. I, some of the cinematography is actually okay. Mm-hmm. There's some really gorgeous aerial shots in this. And I genuinely kind of like the score. Yeah. Um, it's by uh, Alan Howarth, who worked with John Carpenter, amongst many other people. It's kind of a bigger name. I, I just think that, you know, the, the old Stuart Gordon adage that a movie should at least show you one thing you've never seen before. I don't know that this movie does. And I, you know... For the type of thing that it is, certainly we've seen worse. Yeah. I'll continue to see worse. 
but you've seen this before. Yeah. I mean, you, you just have. Uh, the, not, maybe not in this package, though. Maybe not. You've seen this before, but but not wrapped in in this story. I, yeah. <laughs> and there is an on-screen dog death, just warning you. Yeah. Um, there's two commentary tracks, believe it or not. One with director of photography, the production designer, and the co-writers. There's one with Ben Browder and uh, another actress, Cheryl Texiera. There's a whole stack of APK featurettes. I, I'm surprised there's that much on here. Like I said, I don't think this is terrible. Much like the epic stuff we we see all the time, we're always like, this just felt like it wasn't ready to be filmed yet. But you were on to like a path of something, you know. You got almost all the pieces together. You just didn't finish. <laughs> this one, I think, spends too much time. If there's one big crime, it spends too much time doing nothing. Uh, that was kind of my. My biggest beef with it. I think. Well, you are a lucky uh, hoax because of our next one. You are easily not the worst horror film on our list today, and that is the original, The Hills Have Eyes Part Two. This is one of the worst movies I have ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I said I had to write about it on Facebook at one point because I just started laughing so hard I couldn't believe what I was seeing. So, The Hills Have Eyes, Wes Craven film, bunch of campers in the desert get attacked by a bunch of cannibalistic rednecks out there uh, that uh, two of them get away. And this one, like the one that was like the, the redneck that felt bad about being a redneck and helped the family and escaped with them. Uh, she's like it kind of the star here and she is all cleaned up now. She's like, I've joined society, but goes on a trip with them out in the, with some people out in the desert. What could go wrong? And uh, to go dirt bike riding, that was like a big, I remember when this came out, they were really punching the, like they're riding dirt bikes. You guys like dirt bikes. <laughs> There's a lot of that in here. Pumpkinhead is the better of the two 80s yes. dirt bike movies. It decidedly. Dirt bike horror movies. It decidedly is. And, uh, and then, of course, they run into another, like, one of the rednecks from before who was killed on screen but somehow is still alive, um, which you, you can guess which one because he's the, the most iconic of all the, the, mm-hmm. the actors. Top builds. Yeah. And then, like, the guy who sort of, I guess he was the brother of the patriarch from the previous one. Anyway, upshot is same thing except basically this one relies a lot on flashbacks of just scenes from the previous movie. I mean, like, a lot. Uh, more than The Exorcist 2 does. <laughs> um, and what, where it gets super goofy is at one point, the dog has a flashback. <laughs> like, they focus in on the dog and they do the squiggly lines on the screen. Woo, woo, woo. And we see a flashback scene from the dog's memory. And I was like, somebody thought that was okay? That that was a good they idea? Should've, <laughs> they should have uh, at least cropped the frame and moved all the actors so where you just saw their feet. <laughs> right? <laughs> just gone full god, like full god, just fuck it, let's make, uh, make this fun. But there's just nothing genuinely fun here. It's just one bad, poorly, like, they, I mean, it's clear Wes Craven did not give a shit about this movie so, at all. So I watched, there's actually a pretty good documentary on this disc, on this uh, on this release. Uh, and the documentary is one of those, like, it's 30 minutes long, it's one of those warts and all, you know, here's the problems we had, here's what was going on, here's why it is the way that it is. And what had happened was, Craven was coming off a Swamp Thing, which he thought was going to be his big break. And Swamp Thing tanked. Right. And he was like, I have no idea what I'm going to do, because I really thought this was going to be my moment. And a producer who'd worked with him on the first Hills Have Eyes was like, why don't we just do another Hills Have Eyes? 
And Craven was like, all right, cool. Like, let's just do it so we can get our, you know, some money in our pockets. So we can pay our bills and that sort of thing. Right. And he, that producer hooked him up with another producer who said, yeah, I'm ready. I'll give you, I'll, I'll give you what I have right now. Like, you know, here's $125,000 start your movie. And he, he didn't have any further money. <laughs> yeah. So they started their movie and then, then there ended was no up more money. With no more money to finish the movie. And so they went back and tried to construct what they could with, Footage from the first one, um, and then you know it ended up being released after Nightmare on Elm Street. Wes Craven did have his big break. After all, uh, his road was just a little a little more twisty to get there. Um, but I thought the I thought the documentary. I wouldn't say it almost made it the movie worth watching, but I think the documentary on its own is is pretty interesting. Um, you know, I like it when the special features discs get into the nitty gritty of like here were our problems. Like mm. we recognize. You know, we, we've often seen movies that weren't good have special features where it's like people are just like, oh, it's a misunderstood classic, you know, but it's like, I like the fact that they were like, no, it's a busted movie. The script was not what we filmed. Like it just very straightforward being very, very honest. Um, it's funny, this movie's reputation as being awful. <laughs> it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be, but it's also bad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think that's because I haven't seen the first one. Oh, and okay. so having never seen the original Hills Have Eyes... I think the first one is overrated as hell myself. I but think a lot of early was Craven is, but I yeah, can't say that in a public forum like a podcast. I know. Last half on the yeah. left. Um, it's okay. Yeah, why is there so much comic relief, right? <laughs> um, anyways, uh, so Hills Have Eyes, I've never seen the original, so all the flashback stuff was still new material to me. Okay. Uh, so it made it way more watchable than it would have been otherwise. So if you're going to watch these movies... Uh, I don't. I don't know to tell you to watch Hills Have Eyes too. I just. I was expecting like I was expecting that I would not be able to. It would not keep my attention for like five minutes, mm-hmm. and I watched it. Yeah, you got all the way. It's bad. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's really, really bad. bad. <laughs> I watched it. Uh, the one notable thing, and a lot of times when you go back and watch these older films, they'll be like, "Oh my God, look who it is!" And in this case, it's you may not know her name, but you know her face, Penny Johnson, who was Beverly on the Larry Sanders Show. She was Cassidy Yates on Star Trek: Deep Space Nine. She was Sherry Palmer oh. on Twenty Four. She's on Orville now. Uh, yes, she's on the Orville now. Yeah, Yeah. she's like very, very familiar. And she plays one of the young, obnoxious teenagers that, that is actually weirdly the one person who has a nude scene in the movie. Um, but anyway, so if you decide that fuck it all, I want the hills have eyes too. This is a big ass box set that for some reason that Arrow is putting out of this thing. And like, what a weird choice of stuff to, a movie to do this with. It's a brand new 2K restoration. Man, whoever was doing that had to have just been like, I gotta get another job. (laughs) (laughs) It looks like they did a good job. There's a brand new audio commentary with someone called The Hysteria Continues. Is that like a comedy group or something? I don't know. There's the documentary you mentioned, Blood, Sand, and Fire, a stills gallery, six postcards, a reversible fold-out poster, a 40-page booklet, (laughs) and a reversible sleeve with new artwork. That's crazy, man. I, the last house or hills have eyes too. Whatever. Uh, I think it's because if I had to guess, I think it's because there's probably people that are like Wes Craven completists, like there are John Carpenter completists, where it's like I want every one of his movies. Yeah, but video. with John Carpenter, it makes more sense to me than with Wes Craven. Yeah, Wes Craven. Look, I'm not going to deny he had a huge impact on horror and made some films that were very important. But for a guy whose name is always held up there, like masters of horror, he made a lot more just absolute garbage than he did good movies. <laughs> 
God rest his soul. God rest his soul. Uh, <laughs> next up, we have another era release in the aftermath. Now, you guys. Holy crap. <laughs> You guys oh out there God. who are like devotees of the classic age of anime, uh, in particular, Mamoru Oshii, who did Ghost in the Shell, he made a 1985 anime called Angel's Egg, which was incredibly well-received in Japan. Um, it's very primitive animation by any sort of today's standards of anime, for sure. But this movie company, American company, basically said, okay, well, we don't have a lot of money, but we want to buy something. So they bought it and went, we have no fucking clue what happened in this movie. It just see it's pretty, but we don't know what's going on. So they decided to film a, a, a post-apocalyptic story on the super cheap and combine it with footage from the anime with something about... I I don't know how accurate any of this is. Like a little girl who's like a pro, like a sort of like newer angel in another dimension, and her older brother sends her to Earth or wherever this is supposed to be taking place uh, to help people? Question mark. And there's this guy who's a soldier who's running around in this irradiated wasteland, and he meets a girl who's also a survivor, and they hit it off uh, probably for no other reason other than there's not a lot of compatible like humans at all left. <laughs> and then the angel shows up and I'm not sure what she does. She doesn't seem like she really <laughs> helps much. And then she leaves. And at the end, she's like, like she Glinda the good witch is the hell out of there. And I, I'm the, watch this. Apparently this is like sort of like a night flight era type movie. Like one of those they put on late night on television and people would be like, what the fuck is this? And they'd be so high. They actually think they enjoyed it. <laughs> Yeah, this is, uh, it's kind of like watching, <laughs> it's kind of like watching the full motion video of two different Sega CD games matched up against each other. It kind of is. You have like this live action, like super half-assed post-apocalyptic shit that's literally intercut with like 80s anime. Yeah. And, and with, and it just goes back and forth, like literally like scene to scene. Um, it's not. It's not artistically done. It's not. No. It's. A, it's a hatchet job, <laughs> and the quality is. The quality is like I said. It, it. It reminded me of like. Oh, this is like playing one of those old full motion video games. That's like the quality of the live action part. Um, this thing's weird. Yeah, and it's it's just a bizarre anomaly of a thing. This also has special features where they talk about kind of how it came to be, sort of warts and all. I think they're a little more precious with it than they are in Hills Have Eyes, but it was still informative. Um, And if you're a fan of, like, what the hell am I even watching right now, cinema? (laughs) This is a strong recommend from me. (laughs) Only in that context. It is not a good movie in any way, shape, or form, but you will stare at it like a car crash. You you will definitely... And it's at times a very beautiful car crash. (laughs) I guarantee you, you have never seen a movie like this. You'll watch it and you'll go, I've never seen anything like this. Oh, there's a reason why I've never seen anything like this. Yeah. <laughs> because it wasn't a good idea to begin with. In the Aftermath. It has a longer title. Like, the official title is something like, In the Aftermath, Angel's Last Kiss, or something like that. Like, it has some crazy long title that it's that it's known by. Sorry, um, is the cat attacking you? Yeah, he's literally attacking me. Sorry. That's okay. J- Jack, yeah, behave yourself. He's gone now. Uh, they just want to get fed. Anyway, uh, there is this is a brand new 2K restoration. 
like I said, it's from Arrow. There's the Path to Aftermath, which is a new interview with the producer, uh, who really is kind of the guy who made this. This, you know? this release only really makes sense if you put the whole damn original film on here. Right. The, this, it, I'm, I, I, I want to see that. It was some of that imagery in that stuff was really interesting. Well, I mean, like I said, the original film is considered to be quite good by many, by anime enthusiasts. I am not one of them, but yeah. I'm definitely one of those. I had even heard of it myself. Uh, there is a Apocalypse Then, a newly filmed interview with the star, Tony Marks. Before the aftermath, the influence of Angel's Egg, which is basically just a look at Mamoru Oshii's original film by a, quote, anime, anime expert. Uh, still in poster gallery, a reversible sleeve with new artwork, and the first pressing of this, which I can't imagine they're going to sell much past the first pressing, uh, is a booklet featuring an essay on the film. So let's move on to one you didn't see, and I'm only going to talk about real briefly, because I've barely gotten a chance to look through this thing yet, which is Time Life, who we talked about last time you were on with the Carol Burnett Show collection. It's now put out a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in concert collection, which is about, you know, the actual Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and whenever they do a thing, they tend to do, like, they get, like, like bands that haven't been together on stage for like 25 years or weird connect groups, like super groups of people together. Or if like somebody like they did a famous thing with Nirvana where like different people were coming in and singing, you know, uh, where otherwise it was the rest of the band, but it's a, uh, like four, let's see, there's two, four DVD things in here. And one that is just the, uh, uh, I guess this is the 25th anniversary show, which is really kind of the big one. Uh, but there's just tons of people on this thing. Um, and a lot of these uh, performances in here are actually pretty well known. It's 179 total performances, including Born to Run with Bruce Springsteen with Billy Joel playing with him. Weird. Uh, Gimme Shelter, U2 with Mick Jagger, Fergie, and Will I Am. <laughs> I know it sounds like a concert in hell. <laughs> uh, the Wait, which is the band with Eric Clapton. Teach Your Children, Crosby, Stills, Nash with James Taylor and Emmylou Harris. While My Guitar Gently Weeps with Tom Petty, Jeff Lynne, Steve Winwood, Donnie Harrison, and Prince. That is an odd mix right there. Uh, lots of like in-depth Induction speeches from people like Bruce Springsteen, Bono, David Letterman, Mick Jagger, Dave Grohl, Art Garfunkel, Glenn Fry, Miley Cyrus, John Meyer, Paul McCartney, Kid Rock, Billy Joel, Tom Petty, and a lot more. Lots of uh, behind-the-scenes stuff. It's basically about 30 hours worth of entertainment. Um, and then that's just the first two four-disc collections. <laughs> like I said, the... the, the the 25th anniversary has a lot more stuff on it. Um, there's a 36-page Rolling Stone magazine booklet that comes, and you can also upgrade to a deluxe, uh, deluxe edition version, which has a hundred additional performances added into it. But yeah, I mean, it's my wife is much more into live music and stuff than I am, so she was super excited to get this. I. Don't, I'm sure if I watch it, it will only be under protest with her. We brought up. I didn't realize that's what that Prince. Um, uh, performance was from, and I've seen that, and it's actually pretty freaking amazing. Well, usually the the stuff they put on there is like about yeah. really. I mean, they don't half ass those performances. I didn't know what that jam band. session was from, but him doing that solo during uh, my guitar gently weeps is like is pretty. pretty That's pretty legendary. Yeah. Well, next up, we have Lego DC Batman Family Matters. I get to redeem myself because uh-huh. I did not like Hush, and I know that some of the loyal. Uh, one of us listeners were really looking forward to seeing what we had to say about Hush, <laughs> and I was not a fan. To the most point. of them were like, 
we're expecting you to hate it. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. To the point that I kind of threw up my hands and was just like, I, I'm done with these DC animated movies. I'm back on board with the DC animated movies. Just I thought the, this was nice. Just the Lego ones. Well, you know, and I didn't... I, I got to be completely honest with you. I... I liked... Did I like this some more than Lego Batman the movie? I tell you what, they're going for more in Lego Batman the movie. They're throwing more gags at the wall. It's way, way, way more frenetic. This was this has a gentler pace, and I'm an old man. I appreciated the gentler pace. <laughs> I appreciated it not being as hyperactive as Lego Batman movie. But this thing was appropriately loving to the DC Universe, and it was really pleasant. And we talked a little bit about it... Um, when I was coming in, because I couldn't remember the plot, and I had to get a little bit of a refresher, but it's also because <laughs> I watched it a couple weeks ago. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's basically a Red Hood story um, where where Batman decides he's going to focus um, specifically on being Batman. He's going to let some of his Bruce Wayne persona, some of his roles and duties as Bruce Wayne, he's going to let those go, and. He's met with some resistance from the whole Batman family, who are all part of this movie as well. You do have Nightwing and Robin and Batgirl and Batwoman all sort of like, you know, trying to let him know that that's not something that he... He doesn't have to do it alone sort of thing as he faces off against Red Hood. Um, and and the and the the, uh, the kind of underlying story of Brother Eye, which is also sort of being weaved through this uh, <laughs> through storyline. Um, which I was unfamiliar with that part. Oh, I had to look it up. I was yeah. like, oh, I don't know about Brother Eye. So. Yeah, very very old school DC stuff. Um, I think that's a Jack Kirby creation. Yeah, they've done um, something very different with it here. Yeah. But, uh, but this was kind of cool. I kind of liked this. It was gently <laughs> wow. humorous. It was gently humorous. The animation was exactly what I expect from any of these... Any of the direct-to-video Lego stuff. The sure. movie stuff has more of a tactile look and feel. Right. And again, it's more frenetic. The home video stuff has more of a glossy, uh, kind of a video gamey feel. Uh, definitely more computer-generated looking. But it's also a little more relaxed in its energy. Um, I, I dug this. I thought this, was, I thought this was fine. I thought this was perfectly fine. It's a little long in the tooth. Um, I felt like it kind of went on longer than it needed to. Yeah. Um, but... But yeah, I, I liked this more than I liked Batman Hush, believe it or not. Oh, I, I did too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have the Lego, the home release Lego DC Universe stuff has always been a sort of hit and miss. Mm -hmm. Like, there's been stuff that was like, this is just dull and not very funny. And there's been stuff like, oh, this is a pretty good time. I actually kind of enjoyed this. And this is definitely on the higher end of these. I mean, I don't know if I'd put it up against the Lego Batman movie per se, uh, but, um, I, it's a lot better than I expected it to be, for yeah. sure. And genuinely funny at points. I really loved they do a thing that's more recent in the comics with Batman. The only one of the family he acknowledges is, like, he completely competent as Batwoman, which is kind of the thing in the comics. He's always like, you go over there. You go over there. You you know what? I trust you. You're going to do whatever you're going to do. You'll do it. Yeah. So, and everyone else is like, hey, what the fuck? She's the new one. <laughs> uh it's, I mean, it's a goofy plot, but it's the Lego. It's a comedy thing, but it ties into. There's so much like tips of the hat to so many things in DC Comics that are sort of the fun stuff. Um, yeah, I had a good time with this too. I, I was genuinely surprised that I enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I guess brother, I was from the OMAC project. Yeah, yeah, uh, which goes back to uh, Greg Rucka's 2005 miniseries. 
But yeah, it's uh, simplistic, but it's just interesting enough for adults to enjoy as well, assuming you're already a fan of DC Comics. There's no special features here, but there is a Lego Mini Ultimate Batmobile you can assemble that comes with it, which is kind of cool. I watched it with an eight-year-old girl. She lost interest halfway through, but she really, really liked Batwoman, who she'd never seen before. Oh, nice. So... Well, there is going to be a lot more Batwoman very shortly. And I showed her the live-action trailer, and she was like, I'm watching that! She was, like, super on board, knowing that that character was about to be, like, real. So, So, what is the... There's a definitive run, and I'm blanking. It's it's Ruckus. It's Uh, Ruckus, Yeah, and I can't remember... And the the artist is the one that makes... Sells it the uh, most. Jones. Yeah. yeah, is it J.G. Jones? Is it's so gorgeous. It's so yeah. beautiful. That's one of those I bought for the art, like, without even having read it yet. I was like, ooh, I want to own this. Elegy. Hmm? Elegy is the name of the book. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah, Batwoman Elegy. I, I highly recommend that. Uh, next up is The Beatles Made on Merseyside. This is, yes, we know, there's eight trillion things about the history of the Beatles and various aspects. This is the first one I've ever seen that said, look, this starts from John Lennon buying a guitar and ends with Ringo joining the band. (laughs) This is the early days. And honestly, this stuff is pretty interesting. It's stuff I've not ever heard explored as much. Like, people, like, the documentaries, when they, like, mention Pete Best and Stu Sutcliffe, they, like, (laughs) anyway, next, they're gone now, so don't worry about them. And this actually gets into their relationship with the band, and, uh, and there's a lot of new footage with Pete Best talking uh, on this. Uh, though apparently, uh, some of this was added after an initial release of this with Pete Best. Like he saw it and then said, "Hey, I'll come in and do more stuff," hmm. which is kind of kind of neat. I mean, it's far from essential, but if you are a Beatles fan, and there's a lot of us out there. This is the Liverpool story that at that era of of their career when they went from just kids who were like had no way they could have possibly foreseen what was going to happen to being on the brink of being the biggest stars in the history of the world. Uh, but what did you think of this thing? I think this is for, for diehards only. Yeah, uh, it's very dry, very very dry. It's. Um, you know, it's all talking heads for the most part, and um, it, you know, just kind of telling sort of like they're all telling sort of like pieces of minutia and anecdotes from the like late high school days of uh, you know the people that we know from the Beatles and yeah. it the was Quarrymen days, the Quarrymen days, and skiff music or whatever. Was it skiff music? That yeah, was that was one of the. Yeah, that um, that was. I didn't even know that was a thing. genre of music. Um, it was like. Bluegrass, sorta, but playing rock and roll. Yeah, but but punk in that you didn't have to know how to play any instruments. Yeah, this is to keep a rhythm. Um, I just thought this was dry. It was so dry. It was bone dry. It was. It was. Uh, yeah, I could have used a gently weeping guitar to moisten it up a little bit. Um, <laughs> uh, this was. Uh, yeah, I I felt like okay, this is for diehard fans who again, so much has been exhausted at this point. I appreciated the sort of what we haven't heard about this yet and kind of like digging up all their old high school friends and early uh, band members and things like that. But, um, but I think you have to, I think you already have to be like into Beatles history and, and, and be interested in it versus other Beatles documentaries. I've seen like the one that came out a few years ago about the woman who was like their, their personal assistant. Right. I can't remember the name of that movie. Yeah, but it was good. Three or four years ago. It was good. And, and that was one that I didn't feel it was as dry and also had more appeal outside of just Beatles history. This is very specific to almost being like academic 
about mm-hmm. a specific time in the Beatles' history. Yeah, I mean, I am a super Beatles fan, and I, I found it kind of interesting. Yeah. I did not know much about this period or, or what was going on. Like I said, I didn't, I didn't even know what skiff music was, and that's a huge thing in the history of the Beatles, apparently. Uh, but I totally agree with you. I mean, this is, uh, in the sense, it's very academic. Um, not a lot of money was sunk into this. There's not even any new interviews with McCartney or Starr. Like, they're all just old interviews that they managed to get the rights to use a little bit here and there. There's not much interviews with them at all in general. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, it's, uh, I guess, for hardcores only. Next up, we have Miss Arizona. This was a DVD film that we watched <laughs> look at me real quick. Are my eyes still rolling? Uh, were they, they rolling they, they, they the finally, whole time? Have they finally stopped rolling? Am I okay? <laughs> Just <laughs> rotating around. Um, this is a little comedy. Um, Johanna Brady plays uh, Rose. She was crowned Miss Arizona when she was young, but in her home state. But now she's moved to L.A. Her husband, played by Kyle Howard, is always on the road is ignoring her clearly is like having an affair. She's just bored out of her mind, but super rich, but only given so much of an allowance. And she's in looking for something to do. She decides she's going to, uh, she, she gets talked into basically to go to this woman's shelter and teach a life skills course of which she knows nothing about. Like she's never had to work. <laughs> she went right from being a high school, pro- like princess to Mm -hmm. being a kept woman for this rich guy. And she meets all these women here uh, and they end up taking her on kind of like a ride throughout the city as they're trying to accomplish a bunch of miniature goals to fix all their lives. And she gets really into it, which includes, of course, her and a very emotionally modern, like by modern standards, complex. How am I supposed to feel about this scene scene where they need some money really bad. So they get the, the primary girl, the rich girl to dress up like a dude in drag to enter a drag show because she's won a pageant before. It's like, Oh, you can win this. And it's like, well, this is uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah. This movie here. Yeah. Um, there's a couple things. It's not, um, just from a screenwriting standpoint, they talk about like establishing uh, what your conflict is like fairly early on. If you can, um, this movie became something that I didn't realize this movie was going to be about. Cause really what this, I think they spend, they spend a really long time getting there and then they spend the rest of the movie there. And mm-hmm. that's the, the drag queen contest. Right. And I'm like, Oh, I did not know that that's what this movie was going to be about until it became about that. And there's also lots of, like, little leaps in logic. Like, why is she teaching them, like, she's teaching them at night? Like, she has them all out in a van at night. And I'm right. like, why? when is her shift over? Like, <laughs> when, can, when is her, when can she go home? Like, why is she literally, like, just, she spends, like, 48 hours with them uninterrupted. And I'm just like, what? Isn't she just a teacher? Like, <laughs> so there's leaps in logic that this movie has where they're they're small but they're big. Like, I my wheels were turning the whole time. Like, wait, but why? Wait, but why? Right. Like, so part of the part of the film is built around. Um, uh, there's one of the women from the home played by. Um, Oh gosh, what's her name from the uh, not quite human series of oh. of Disney Channel? I don't know uh, robot movies. She Kim, was a, she's Kim an 80s. Jesus. What's that? 
Kim DeJesus, no, Shaniqua Shandai, no, Dana Wheeler Nicholson, not Dana Wheeler Nicholson, who Nicholson. is, by the way, the love interest from Fletch, and she lives here in Austin. She does live here in Austin. <laughs> no, the other one. Oh, Atmara Marrero. No, not that one. Robin Lively. Robin Lively. I don't yes. know. I'm just going down IMDb. Yes, sorry. Robin Lively. So Robin Lively, you might recognize from every TV show ever made in the 1980s. Oh, yeah. She was um, Karate Kid Part 3. Yeah. And there's a subplot with her where she had her kids taken away and it's odd that the movie, like the second half of the movie, the plot doesn't become, oh, I'm a fish out of water that doesn't know how to, that doesn't even know how to take care of myself, and yet I'm supposed to be giving life lessons, which is sort of a fine premise on its own. But then the movie becomes about, oh, this stranger had her kids taken away. I need $800 now so I can reunite this woman with her kids. <laughs> and even the movie asks you to question that at some point where somebody actually tells her, no, she had her kids taken away from her. Like, mm-hmm. And I was sort of like, at that point when you hear that from another character, and this person is a stranger, why would you not give up this quest to find $800 for a plane ticket for this total stranger? You say, maybe I shouldn't be involved. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then, again... The movie wants this, to be adventures in abused woman setting. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and, then, and then they go, well, how can we get some money fast? And one of the characters was like, I know, we can go enter the drag the drag competition because you did pageants, and it's basically a pageant. So here you go. Um it's uh, it's it is high energy. It is a it keeps a tone through the whole thing. You get to see so you get to see Steve Gutenberg in drag, yeah, um, and Missy Pyle's in here too somewhere. Yeah, Missy Pyle, that was weird. Uh, but I think I think the biggest flaws are in the construction of the screenplay, um, kind of kind of meandering again and not getting to the point of whatever it's trying to do quickly enough. Uh, those leaps in logic, again, being almost too big to swallow for a movie so slight. Right. And I think it's miscast. I don't think she comes across as like, she has too much innate intelligence. And the script, if you listen to the things people say to her, it's obvious she's supposed to be more of almost like a Paris Hilton type, where she is so, so rich and dumb that people read it on her the minute they see her. Right. And the actress that they have playing the role comes across, she exudes too much intelligence for the role. I agree. flatly does. Um, it I mean, needed I somebody think- who, it needed like an Anna Ferris or somebody like that who, even though Anna Ferris is smart, can read as like like a dumb bimbo. Right. And, and that's what this was written for, and yet that's not what we're seeing. Yeah, it is a little confused about what kind of movie it wants to be. I did say, on the whole, I liked the supporting cast of the other girls. Mm-hmm. I, I found them rather engaging as actresses, even though the movie's not really going anywhere terribly interesting. Like I said, the drag show thing is the most interesting thing, and quite frankly, it's just not that interesting. If anything, it's just a little, are you sure you want to do this? <laughs> In a film, it just feels like there's maybe now is not the time. I was very, like, didn't hate it, gonna forget I ever saw it, like, a month from now. Yeah, me probably the same. It's, uh, I, I appreciated, though, that it was, it that it did maintain... It did maintain a solid tone, like tonal shifts. Even when even when discussions were dramatic, I felt like if there was any real positive, it was that the, I felt like the director and the cast had a pretty good handle on the tone, even if the plot specifics got away from. Sure. Uh, so next up, you didn't see this. I'm going to real briefly talk about season 14 of Supernatural, which is the the next to last season. They're ending it with season 15. Uh, I, I can't believe it. I'm so heartbroken. <laughs> I know John's like, you've got every like box set of Supernatural. I heard like, it peaked yes. at season eight. 
Um, no, it peaks at season five. Five. And okay. then it sucks for season six and seven, and then it starts to get better at season eight again. Okay. But then it's up and down all the way through to even now, which some people think is one of the worst seasons, and some people think is one of the best seasons. Post-season five. Everyone agrees the first five seasons are the best, although there's still plenty of great episodes that are sprinkled throughout all the seasons, even the weakest ones. Uh, this particular one, part of the problem is they've got this character named Jack, who's like half, like... He's the son of Lucifer, but he's but it's with a human, and he's got like grace. Like grace is the key thing, which is like angelic grace. But he's been on here for a while. Nobody, none of the fans like this guy. He's a kid. He's obnoxious. He's trying to play it like the actor who plays Castiel, who's very like, hmm, I see. I don't understand what's going on. And it doesn't work. And you're like, no, you should try and do your own thing. Um, he's just uh, obnoxiously... It's just like a running joke of like, I don't understand how things work. And he literally dies and comes back in the season, in the same fucking season. <laughs> you're just like, oh my God. But overall, it's okay. It's just, I agree. At this point, it is sort of like, guys, it is time to kind of find a way to wrap this it's up. It's amazing how long the show's run. Yeah, it really is. But there's something about that. That three-part chemistry between the three major leads that people were like, it's very appealing. Those actors are really good in those roles. And I haven't seen it in a really long time because I'm like, wait, three, excuse me, three major leads? Well, yeah, the, the angel who's there, who's kind of like the... I watched like, the first... Two, I basically saw the first two seasons. Okay, so hearing so, there's three major leads, I'm like, what? who, who else? Yeah, way, way later, okay. several seasons later, they have one who's just like, okay, now he's in here all the time. But part of the problem, they like there was a character who was the king of hell... Who and I'm blanking on the actor's name, but he's one of those guys. He was in Battlestar Galactica. He was oh, in you're talking Doctor about Who. yeah, you're talking about the guy from um, uh, Firefly as well. Yeah, he uh, played Crowley, <clears throat> and he is just fan favorite. I mean, because that guy's yeah. great anyway. Yeah. And they killed him off and made such a point of saying, "No, he really is gone. He is not coming back." Last season, and he's very much missed. <laughs> This season, you're like, you can feel him not being there. The plot is because they had to go to a parallel world last season, which they call Apocalypse World, because it's one where the war between hell and heaven happened, and it devastated the world. And now Michael, the head archangel, is hunting down all the remaining, both demons and humans, because uh, he's a real piece of work. <laughs> and I've seen the movie, Michael. <laughs> right, that's the one. And they escape back to this world, but then Michael finds a way to get back here, too. And he's like, great, I get to do it all over again. Fun. And he's possessed uh, Dean. And so they're running around trying to chase Dean until they're not. Like, oh, I'm okay now. I don't know why. That's weird. But everyone's like, okay, I'm sure everything's fine. It's not fine. <laughs> but it does all end up, as these things often do, in a really fun place with... Basically, them saying, okay, um, you remember how God, who's appeared in the show, is a really likable but mildly annoying because of the fact he's a, a non-interventionalist God, uh, was a character where, like, oh, it's great to see God again. Well, they kind of turned God into the villain of the whole series at the very end of this, where you're like, well, God has been the bad guy all along. And now he's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm tired of this shit. We're just going to end this this project right now. And that's, like, how it ends, with them being attacked by, like, every supernatural creature in the world by the oh, thousands wow. coming at them. And, like, God going, uh-huh. I'm like, wow, okay, you got a whole other season. <laughs> but this show does so many goofy things. Uh, like, it makes just, like, things you never, when you watch the first five seasons, would have thought they ever would have gone to. 
at this point, it's like, fuck it. Let's, I hope they pull out all the stops and just go batshit insane in the next season. But yeah, there's a few extra features here, just the normal type of EPK stuff and some goofing around that you've seen on the other sets. I don't think it's essential, but it's also not horrible. I mean, if you're one of those people who like you faded out and you're not missing anything super essential, there is a nice ep- episode of the 300th episode where they bring back the guy who played their dad in the original one, who was Negan in The Walking Dead. Um, and is, so- is this the set that has the Scooby Doo episode? Uh, no, that was last season. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, there's one, they bring him back for just a single episode. They find a way to do it. And it's kind of nice seeing them like all in like, cause the mom is back alive too. Don't ask. The mom has been alive for like three seasons now. <laughs> you know, the one that is the reason the whole show exists is that right. she died. <laughs> anyway, let's move on to our next one, which is Rambo. Rambo. You were not looking Force forward to freedom. watching this. I wasn't. My opinion didn't change, unfortunately. Okay. I felt I felt almost exactly the same way as the first time I watched it. Okay. I thought maybe I would see it with fresh eyes. I did not. Um, I've always been kind of back and forth on the Rambo series. I think the first... First Blood is a tremendously good film. Yes, I love First Blood. Uh, I think uh, First Blood Part 2 is couldn't be sillier. Um, it's entertaining to watch in a sort of the same way you watch Commando or something like that, but it's not a particularly good movie. It's just, it's entertaining for how over the top it is, uh, but it's really bad in every sort of stuff that Michael Bay kept doing after it. <laughs> you know, everything's yeah. so over the top. Three is near unwatchable. Um, but this one, uh, Rambo four, everyone was saying right off the bat, no, 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 this is, this is a different animal. And in some ways it is, uh, they basically wanted to make a, a carnage movie, you know, like we don't want the big patriotic thing this time. We just want to kill lots and lots of people really gory. And John Rambo here is, he is living and where is he? He's in Burma and he's just basically has something to do with like like capturing snakes which are cobras for people which of course Rambo's gonna have a job that badass but he wants nothing to do with anybody and this group of missionaries show up and are like well we're going over to like the main area where these soldiers are massacring people by the thousands tens of thousands and we're gonna put a stop to this because once we they know about Jesus it'll all be okay and he's like fucking idiots but uh Julie Benz, who people best know from television, she played Dexter's girlfriend. She was on uh, Angel. Uh, she's kind of the the one that he his heart warms towards a bit when she comes to him begging for help and says, fine, I will bring you guys out there. And they're horrified. Or at one point along the way, he has to brutally murder a bunch of like pirates who are about to brutally murder them. But uh, so he drops them off, gets back only to find out, oh, uh, we don't know what happened to them. It looks like they've been taken prisoner or something. Can we pay you to go out there and save them? Which then proceeds to happen with hundreds and hundreds of of, uh, Burmese soldiers getting ripped to shreds by Rambo's immunity from harm. (laughs) By God's blessing. Yeah. Ding. Um, I like the way this is filmed a lot more than the previous two entries in the thing, which are just so just no sense of style whatsoever. It's just like, they're so bright. And this one really experiments with shadows and like, try some different stuff. And I think it's a good looking movie. 
Uh, I don't like that they all but completely chose to use CG blood here, and it really shows, especially now that we've got a 4K edition. Like, there's nothing fixing that problem of, like, damn, that doesn't look real at all. Especially in plenty of cases where you're like, why didn't you just use squibs? There was literally no reason. It was not going to be more expensive to use (laughs) squibs than to do digital work. But you just chose to do it anyway. What does bother me is there's this... And I'm not religious at all. Not even the tiniest bit. But there was something kind of gross about this whole thing where the guy's like a pacifist... And then at the end, like the leader, the leader of the the missionaries at the end, he's like bashing at a guy's head with a rock and Rambo's like salutes him and stuff. And you're like, ugh. <laughs> now I get it. At the same time, I don't feel bad for these evil. Like you're, this is natural selection in action. You're like, you're stupid enough to think that this was a good idea. I, I have a hard time feeling real sorry for you. Um, but, but Stallone is doing his same as Rambo that everyone seems to like. And he is enjoyable to watch doing this sort of action. There is good action. I found this entertaining, just unnecessary might be the best word for it. Like why, what was the reason for this being a thing? But anyway, uh, tell us your, your complaints, good sir. Um, It opens with shots of real world atrocities and, and corpses and things. And so when the movie presents a lot of that hyper-violence as entertainment, I have a really difficult time taking it as entertainment, having been presented with um, such, uh, like, such real images of brutality to start with, that the rest of it being so cartoony, it this movie is, uh, like... It's a strange, strange beast. I think it's weirdly anti-entertainment. I think it's so downtrodden and melancholy, but then coupled with, like, again, wild and crazy huts blowing up and machine gun fire like any Rambo movie, like any, you know, cartoonish Rambo movie would have, but is anchored to this, like, like none of it is fun, mm. really. Um, it. It's so it's weird, and I don't like watching it. Um, I had so I read a piece recently by Evan Sathoff, uh, who contextualized the violence in this movie in a different way than I'd considered before. That the hyper violence that you see with corpses exploding and stuff like that, like as he's tearing through people, and um, that it's a literalization of the way that Rambo remembers war in his head that it's, and I, I think he gives the filmmakers too much credit. I think he gives, I think, he's I think he gives credit. Stallone yeah. too much credit, Yeah, but I did think that was an interesting take was the, the, the horror that he experienced as Rambo, the Rambo we see in first blood, who's a, a broken man and is just looking for like a safe place and is haunted by those memories that basically these are those memories brought to life. Mm-hmm. Like if you were to if you were to get a picture in your mind's eye of what he saw in Vietnam, it would be the imagery that you see in in this particular movie and in, in Rambo or John Rambo as the opening credits say. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought that's an interesting take. It doesn't make me like the movie anymore. I just thought it was an interesting take and worth bringing up. Huh? Um, I, yeah, I just find this movie kind of punishing to sit through. I, I don't I don't find it. Um, I I don't find it entertaining, and it, it it's just uh, it's just kind of a big old it's just kind of a big old turn off to me. Um, and, and this is coming from somebody that I'm kind of the same as you. I love First Blood. 
I don't like it that he got more cartoony. Um, I actually got my girlfriend to watch First Blood just a few months ago, and she'd been very, she was very resistant just based on her knowledge of Rambo sure. as an icon. Right. Like the headband and the machine guns and the American flag and explosions. And I was just like, no, no. Like, I promise you this is really good. Right. And she ended up getting really into it. She really liked it. And she said, like, she said, this is so different than what I thought it would be. Oh, totally. And I'm but like, then yeah, if she watched, Blood's great. If she watched the second one, I'd be like, this is exactly what yeah. I thought it would be. <laughs> and then I showed her, yeah, then I showed her, like, a commercial for the toys and the cartoon and stuff. And oh, like, yeah, that. <laughs> now we're going to watch the entire season of the cartoon. <laughs> Are the ropes comfortable? They're not too tight? They're not cinching? <laughs> Uh, there's the theatrical and extended cut here. The extended one is eight minutes longer. And then everything else, there's nothing new here that I can see. It's just, But it is everything from both previous releases of this uh, combined together to be on this release. But, you know, it's 4K. I don't think it's as successful as Rocky Balboa in, no. in revisiting a character. I genuinely really like Rocky Balboa, like yeah. a lot. It's one of my favorites of the Rocky films. This is passably entertaining. I like it better than uh, three, by f- for sure. And I probably like it better than two as well, because two just ha- so hasn't aged well at all. It's just like, ugh, this just feels like a lesser Michael Bay film. <laughs> uh, our last film, which, speaking of war films, is arguably the greatest war film ever made, and that is Apocalypse Now, finally being released on 4K and being released under the title Final Cut. Because uh, Coppola, once again, has decided to revisit it and go, you know, everyone got upset that the redux was too long and had too much unnecessary stuff. And I kind of agree with them. So I'm going to go back in and I'm going to make a version that's longer than the original theatrical cut, which I was never happy with, but shorter than (laughs) redux. Did you watch the intro? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, Yeah, there's a little brief intro with with, uh, uh, Coppola for a couple minutes talking about basically just that. I, I I will tell you honestly, John. This is in my top ten fam- favorite films of all time. Uh, it's based for those few of you out there who may be unfamiliar with what it's about. Based very loosely on Joseph Conrad's book Heart of Darkness. It follows Martin Sheen. Originally was Harvey Keitel. In the middle of filming, they decided this should just ain't this. He's just not working in the role. But kind of curious why that footage isn't here. I would love to see that. <laughs> Gosh, I, side note: I really want to revisit uh, *Hearts of Darkness*, the documentary. Yeah, it's on. I, it's in the set as well. Is it? Oh, oh cool. yeah, it's fantastic. I, I saw it back when it came on. What was it? A Showtime exclusive movie or something back in the day when they released it? Oh, it's so good. And, uh, and I haven't seen it since, and I'd like to see it. Well, uh, so Martin Sheen plays a, uh, a guy who the is he's in Saigon. He's just waiting for his next mission. He's one of those people who's like, I can't go home because when I go home, all I think about is being back here. And he's kind of crazy. (laughs) You know, he's on a lot of drugs. He's just losing it more and more as he waits for something. So they finally call him in to give him something. And that's, hey, this colonel who's been decorated like crazy. He was a hero. uh, Colonel Kurtz, he has gone off the reservation. He is somewhere in the woods out in Cambodia in the jungle, and he has started a cult of followers, and we need you to go there and assassinate him, basically. So they team him up with a United States Navy River patrol boat uh, with uh, a couple different uh, crew people with him, including a 14-year-old Lawrence Fishburne. 14 years old, holy crap, to go chase Marlon Brando out in the jungle. And along the way, they meet people like Robert Duvall as uh, the classic William Bill Kilgore, a colonel who really is only interested in finding good places to surf while he's in Vietnam. If you have ever heard, Charlie, don't surf! That's 
famous line from him. I was thinking, by the way, you know what I would, I, w- I wouldn't want to watch a sequel to Apocalypse Now, but I would totally watch a movie about what that guy is doing now. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to see a film just about his character and he's gotten old and his son's all surf now and what, what happens? What happened to that guy? Uh, but yeah, there's lots of interesting people along the way in this thing. Dennis Hopper is a photojournalist. At one point, Harrison Ford uh, plays an aide to the colonel who assigns the mission originally. Scott Glenn is in here but has no dialogue, weirdly. Uh, <laughs> and um, it's kind of a masterpiece. And yes, it's long. But it's one of those films that you just let wash over you. Um, I, I watched this I don't even know how many times. And I'll say this. This is the best-looking 4K upgrade I have ever seen. I was deeply impressed with the way this looks. It only made me wish I had a proper sound system to test that out, because from all the reviews, the sound is also spectacularly upgraded over the past over the previous uh, uh, Blu-ray set from 2010, which was already pretty good. But yeah, the, if you're an Apocalypse Now fan, this is decidedly an upgrade worth buying. Now... There could be problems about being an early buyer because, as John discovered, because he doesn't have a 4K player, you watch the Blu-ray, there were a lot of issues with uh, the transfer onto the disc, including, yeah. like, sound issues and stuff. So, I mean, sometimes that happens, not often, but sometimes it happens with early on releases. But that's obviously going to be, like, maybe wait for a month before you order it off Amazon. Anyway, what do you what do you think of Apocalypse Now? My relationship with Apocalypse Now is interesting. It was one of my stepfather's uh, favorite films. Mm-hmm. And I remember he would rent, on a pretty regular basis, the big old two, two VHS oh, yeah. plastic case that would have both, both the first half of the movie and the second half of the movie. And I haven't seen this since I was single-digit single age, probably... Somewhere around age eight or nine is probably like the last time I saw the film in its entirety. And it was interesting to me how much of it had kind of seared itself into my memory. Um, I thought that I would have forgotten more of it. I actually like remembered pretty much everything as it was happening, as if I had just watched it like last wow. week. It's so iconic. Yeah, I think I think the imagery is so strong. I think especially at a young age, it being one of the first... Um, at first visual representations of war that I had ever seen as a kid. Um, and that's a weird place because the version of war as presented in this film is an odd sort of like, it's a weird sort of thing where it's more like, oh, you're hanging out with your friends, except there's sudden and extreme bursts of horror and violence. <laughs> right. Um, which is a very different picture of the war than like a traditional war movie paints. Um, yeah, this, uh, I was surprised at how much of it I remember to the point where even when it came back around to the, uh, the plantation scene, which I guess was added in Redux and is added here. Yeah. They, they made a shorter it, version. They maintain it, it here. Yeah. I even recognized that as new material, like, yeah, and then it was new material and I, you know, I was able to go, oh, that's all this is new. I get what they were trying to do with it. I do feel like it was probably not necessary to the cut. It's one of those where but, you go. I totally understand. Because, like, Coppola famously said, this movie isn't about Vietnam, it is Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Because, um, metaphorically, everything in here is covering aspects of the Vietnam experience. And this was, French Plantation in that context is a very important aspect of the Vietnam experience, but more symbolically. But that scene, tonally, pacing-wise, stops the movie dead. Yeah. And it's the only sequence in the whole film where the film slows to a crawl yeah. for, like, 15 minutes. I agree. Yeah. Um no, and I think I think it's I think its imagery is indelible. I think also I think Coppola doesn't get enough credit if you if you 
really pop in like Godfather or Apocalypse Now, there's a look to his movies that look specifically modern. I don't think he's given enough credit um, in regards to the visual language of cinema and the cinematography and the way that he frame shots, chooses shots and light shots are literally like, I, there's like a line in the sand from, from his output in the seventies to now where it's like people still look like Coppola films, like stuff that's being shot now still looks like stuff in apocalypse now mm-hmm. or Godfather or, you know, I, I, and I don't know that he gets enough credit for that simply because he's made a lot of lackluster films and he, sure. you know, he had an, he had a very weird sidetrack in his career where he decided to finance all of his own stuff himself and was going to be his own studio. And all of that in retrospect probably kept us from seeing him achieve greatness again and again and again. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, this is, it's essential. It's an essential movie. Um, and, 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 you know, I I actually for something that doesn't isn't particularly story heavy. It also doesn't feel um, it's not it's not a boring movie. Yeah, uh, which is weird to say. A lot of things that are a lot of things that are three hours long, like a Scorsese three hour long movie, is because there's so much plotting and so much happening and so much. It's so fast moving that yeah. at three hours moves at a clip. Yeah, and you're this like, is like, a lot of, three hours. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of this is like there's a lot of stuff where it's like you're in a lazy river. Or now you're at this, uh, you know, you're hanging out with these soldiers at this place. And and you realize that, like, every scene, it's masterfully crafted. Every scene lasts about 30 minutes long, and you're on to the next scene. And it ends up playing kind of episodic, but it also makes the movie not feel like three hours because each chunk of it uh, sort of has its own worth as it carries along so that it doesn't, it doesn't feel like a long, boring movie. Okay. Wow, interestingly said. Um, I definitely feel there's just a kind of, like I said, there's no other way to say it. This movie just kind of ambiently washes over you and you join its world. Yeah, you and know? I think that's the deal. It's like, and before you know it, like 45 minutes have passed. Yeah. So uh, so now this is, like I said, a massive upgrade. Uh, there comes with, there's the 4K, the disc one, which is the final cut with the introduction by Francis Ford Coppola. The second disc is the 4K version of the theatrical version of Apocalypse and Apocalypse Now Redux. The Redux version is the only one version that has an audio commentary by Coppola on it. So this does have the other versions in it? Yes. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, and then there is also a uh, Blu-ray version of Final Cut, the original, and of of Redux here as well. And that ports over all the bonus features, pretty much, I think, everyone but one, and that was not even really kind of about Apocalypse Now. It was like sort of a promo for whatever Coppola was doing at that point. Uh, but pretty much everything else from previous editions, which is a lot, like a huge amount of bonus features. And, but that's not all. You also get the really the maybe the most essential to really truly understanding a great film documentary about a great film, Hearts of Darkness, which was made filmed by his wife, who was there the whole time filming everything, and then she assembled it and made it into this documentary, which is uh, won a ton of awards in and of itself because it's fantastic. And you watch it going. How in the fuck did they end up with a movie this good, considering that that was like, they literally thought they were going to die at points over there making it. It was, it was anarchy. 
it was just throwing shit at the wall and trying to like, let's just shoot whatever we can, you know, and everything falling apart and points that like Martin Sheen, uh, like was pronounced dead at one point of a heart attack and managed, they managed to save him. Like there was a priest giving him last rites. It was just like, it was, it was crazy. It's a great documentary. So that's here as well, including a whole bunch of new extra features, brand new stuff, including a Tribeca film interview Q&A with Francis Ford Coppola and Steven Soderbergh doing the interview for 47 minutes, which is quite good. There's uh, 21 minutes of super eight millimeter behind the scenes footage that's never been seen before of like just of them like shooting all the actors and stuff fucking around on set and doing things or shots of famous shots, but from a different angle. Uh, there is a Dutch angle, Chaz Gerritsen in Apocalypse Now, which looks into some of the, the cinematography choices here. There's Apocalypse Now, remastering a legend in Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos, which gets deep into how what how they did this. My favorite thing here was Apocalypse Now, a 40-year journey. It's only two and a half minutes long, but what it does is it takes the Flight of the Valkyries helicopter scene and has it starts with this is the original VHS release of it and what it looked like. And then it starts scanning like a line across the screen and showing every upgrade of the film going all the way up to the new one. So you can see what a difference there is between them. And it's remarkable. You're like, wow. I mean, even just where it's like, here's what the Blu-ray looked like. You're like, yeah, that's really good. And then it swipes to the 4k and you're like, (gasps) (laughs) that's a lot better. Uh, There's also sensual sound technology from Meyer sound, uh, John Milius script excerpt with Francis Ford Coppola reprinting pages from the script. There's an image gallery, photo archive, a marketing archive. Yeah, this is no question the pick of the week this week. Like, like just, Lionsgate doesn't usually go like all out like this, but they certainly did for this. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I can say about this that that irritated me is that the last. Uh, the 2010 Blu-ray set, which is really nice in and of itself, came with a really cool booklet, like a big, thick booklet with it. No booklet this time around. So now I was like, shit, now I can't sell my Blu-ray. <laughs> <laughs> Annoying. Anyway, that's it for this week's Digital Noise. Thank you, Mr. John Golson, for Thank joining you. me. Where can would you like people to, come, to find you? Oh, gosh, if you live anywhere near Austin, I will have a brand-new sketch comedy show up on its legs on October 17th. 24th and Halloween night, October 31st at 8 p.m. at Fallout Theater called The Haunting of Hell Hell. I love that. <laughs> That's kind of awesome. So it's like just influenced by all the sort of in big influx of like horror television lately. It is um, influenced by actually anthology horror. It is a, it is a, uh, um, um, guide through a mansion and he has an art gallery and every picture has a story. Ah, so it's like night gallery. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. Well, I'll be back in about another week with uh, Aaron, who's already got struggling through a big stack of, of mixed results films, and that'll be really fun to talk about.